Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this Sydney Ideas event. Before we commence, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. It's on this land that the University of Sydney is built, and we have been um, basing our, it's only really a drop in the ocean, 150 odd years of um, education and research here based on the Aboriginal years of learning and teaching throughout their generations. So um, that's a, just a, an important thing to remember as we commence this exciting evening. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce this event. I'm, my name's Fran Moore and I'm the Interim Head of School of the Sydney School of Education and Social Work within the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney and I'm delighted to see so many people here on a cold evening. Nothing worse than having a wonderful um, presentation by our um, artist-in-resident, our poet and writer, Mark Tredenick. Now, I've got your name pronounced wrong, but I can do a course with that, Mark. I've been told by Mark Malloy, so thanks, Mark. And, uh, and Robin Ewing, who is our um, professor in creative arts and education within education and social work. So this evening we're in for a real treat as um, Robin will lead Mark in a, a conversation and I've had the opportunity today to race up to Fisher Library and, and um, borrow a few of Mark's um, poetry books. I've only had about uh, 15 minutes to read some but I was very inspired so I'm really looking forward to this event this evening, Mark, and delighted that you're here at the university. So over to you. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Fran. In actual fact, because we want poetry to own this space tonight, Mark's going to start with a poem. Is this on? Hi. Thank you so much for coming. It's not that. This is not cold. I'm from Bowral. This is not cold. All right. I, um, <clears throat> if, if it works, I'd like to um, begin with a poem by someone else, um, Anna Agmatova, how I want to begin, and I'd like to finish with a poem by uh, Seamus Heaney, if we can make it work that, that way. You've all got a couple of hours, haven't you? <laughs> Two or three, yeah, <clears throat> you should be right. Um, so what I thought I'd uh, do is begin with a poem by Anna Ekmatov, which may be known to many of you. It's called, uh, Why Then Do We Not Despair? Uh, and it speaks to some of the themes Robin and I are going to come across, uh, are going to cover. It also uh, gave me the uh, epigraph to a poem which I wrote just a week or two ago. So um, I'm going to then read that, if that's all right, Robin. Um, Akhmadova was Russian, of course, and suffered greatly. And this poem is translated, a thing we might also possibly touch on. And interestingly, translated by two people, Stanley Kunitz, who's a poet you might 
know of, an American poet, and Max Hayward, whom I don't really know, but perhaps the person who helped the poet understand what the original uh, language said. There's my translator smiling at me even as I speak. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deepest transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. Something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. Shall I just kick on with... So my poem is called, is called First Cold Night. There you go. It's a segue for you. Um, and it begins with the opening stanza of Akhmatova's poem, the bit that ends with, Why then do we not despair? This poem is for my children. The first cold night of the year falls deep in April. And the base note of finished fires farther north holds and holds inside the quiet of the air. The dark so dark it is the earth before the earth began. And in it everything is recollected. And loss becomes a kind of expectation, grief a kind of gratitude. Eleven o'clock leans against my car and looks back into my house lit where I have left my mind to sit a while among its books and schemes and demons. Where there are always trains, none pass tonight, and all the lazy constellations stall. Heaven herself has fallen down and felled the roses that should be standing by my door. The new moon has shipped its tender freight of hope beyond the western hills, and where my daughter spent a Saturday making a mess of my balcony upstairs, there's still the mess she made, and still the mess she made, the glue she spilled, the flecks of gold, take care of me tonight. Memory mends me, the broken bowl of me, the whole of me, again in her hands. And let me wear this healing the scars of our coming together again, like learning lightly in the thoughtless kindness of the night. My cat, Sappho, karma, kin of that poet of the broken heart, looks out from the window, <clears throat> her eyes wide with wondering what the hell. But I stand a little longer in the first cold night of the year, for this is emptiness out here. And it will fill again in sleep. But while it holds, it holds me too. And the world is still gassed and gaslit, hacked and swindled and deceived. And I am too. But the night is void of this for now. And all there is, is all the love one's life is worthy of.
Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I think it's clear why the Sydney School of Education and Social Work has invited Mark to be our artist in residence, our writer in residence this year. I want to start with Mark's own words uh, as a way into this conversation. We need more than we know poetry to be made and I hope it always will be made and that it will be more widely read and respected than it is. For it refutes fundamentalism and refuses platitude and reawakens us to our common humanity, to our human beingness, to the wonder and peril of the world. And it calls us back to the work of justice that it fails, that, that it falls to each of us to make of and in and with our lives. We need more than we know poetry to be made. Mark, I want to start by asking you, how does one become a poet? How did you become a poet? Um, I wasn't any good at anything else. <laughs> That's not true. You know, you all probably know his bio as well as I do. That's why I didn't read it out. Well, you know, the secret of poetry is that most of what's good about a poem is everything you leave out. The kind of, you know, pauses. So there are a lot of silences in my bio, <laughs> all the things I can't do, all of which I remembered this weekend moving house, like knots. I do not know how to tie and um, all of that kind of thing. Now, I have a friend, a uh, poet and writer, James Galvin, who, who quipped like that too. He said he went to a school, Antioch, in um, a Quaker school, I think, in the, in the US, uh, where they ask you to practice many different arts. And he said, you know, I got fairly good at a number of them and very good at uh, singing and, um, and guitar, but something in me deeper called me into art. And, my skill set and technique just wasn't going to get me to that level in, with the guitar, with, with music. So whereas with poetry, he felt that, that, um, that it could. And so I think it was a similar thing with me. I love music very much. My parents um, had their 60th wedding anniversary on the weekend. My father's an accountant. I don't know where all that skill set went in me. I can count syllables uh, and cricket scores. Um, and so on, but and my mother's a musician. Uh, that makes a bit more um, sense of, of things. But you know, I, and my grandfather, interestingly, is a Methodist was a Methodist minister. You can hear a little bit of that, right? Um, there's a bit of kind of Bible in the background um, here. How did I become it? Um, I I um, enjoyed hymns and understood poetry and kind of got it as a younger. Uh, person, and I think it was those lyric dimensions of prose and storytelling that I responded to much more than the story. I always forget plot lines, but I never forget phrases uh, and kind of moments. Francis Webb, the Australian poet, calls um, the poem the enormous moment, which is a lovely way to think of the lyric 
uh, moment. I think I'm a lyric being. Some of us come out that way is, uh, is, is part of it. And um, uh, I may be a throwback of some kind. But words were a comfortable place for me. And I wanted always to make more of words than were mostly made um, of them. And uh, it seemed to be a craft that, that called me. So what I did was not write for a long time. And then I began to, um, there is a Sydney University connection here actually. James Tulip taught at this university in English for many years and Jim was a neighbour of ours in Epping where I grew up and at a certain point I got the courage when I was 16 or 17 to show Jim who was also in our church which was a very significant church in Sydney um, spiritual history in a way. It was the congregational church and there were many uh, very fine intellectual spiritual thinkers there of whom Jim was one but I showed him some poems of mine and he he again practiced mostly the art of silence he said next to nothing about my poems but he did say I think you need to read some Robert Gray and some William Carlos Williams those were two these two hints and I think um, so I had a calling and then I needed some craft and some gentle guidance Gray was about I think um, convincing me that you make poems out of the language, uh, the vernacular of the time you're in, rather than doing what I was doing, which many beginner writers do, which is to kind of ape an older poetic language. And William Carlos Williams was to make me stop telling and explaining everything and to start just using image and, me and metaphor. So that was my path in. And you, and you do that so well. You know, I think your metaphor is... is a huge strength of your writing. So, thank you. Can can you perhaps tell us then? You you had a, a long sort of windy road into actually writing for a living. Mm. Yes, quite long. I spent a long time. Um, well, in one of my poems, as I say, I'm living li my life backwards. Okay. So it's you know I'm I'm. I, I began <clears throat> studied law here and um, uh, history, actually. And then um, I think I'm the child of parents who wanted something you know, better for their child than they got for themselves. So law seemed to be a sensible thing for somebody who was vaguely linguistically talented to, to go do. So I insisted on, on um, arts, which I loved and did philosophy and Latin and, um, and history here and law and I, uh, I did, got right through law school, used to be in the city of course, um, in a very ugly, the world's ugliest um, bomb shelter really. Um, so it's much lovelier here now but I, I did my arts here on campus. Um, I went all the way through and got my articles and whatnot and practiced law for nine months and left. Um, and for me it was about billable hours, I just couldn't bear the tyranny of the six minute you know, interval. And it was also um, ethical because um, one place for somebody, uh, David Marshes, his background with me actually, one place that somebody whose uh, parents push him down that line and who doesn't have the fortitude to resist in, in a way, uh, but who's uh, inclined in a literary way ends up is with uh, a firm like Malice and Stephen Jakes who used to act for Fairfax. So you got all the defamation work in town, which puts you for once on the right side, as it were, of, um, of um, that kind of legal work, acting in defense of free speech. So I, I ended up at 
at, uh, at Mallison's, but m most of the work involved in being a decent lawyer is about transactions and getting things done on time. Um, and as I say, you know, maximizing your billable hours, all things I'm terrifically bad at. So I just knew that it wasn't going to be my space and saw it coming fairly soon and went sideways into book publishing. And that was more like it uh, for a little while. Butterworths, I don't know if anybody knows them, law and technical publishers. Their best-selling book was The Artificial Insemination of Sheep and Goats, a thing <laughs> we used to love. I remembered more Margamo and Lahane on equity and other books like that. And I was in that job for a little while when the new corporations, uh, when we went from company law to corporations law. and uh, But that was never really going to hold me. But I did learn how to edit, and I did learn um, in a more um, orderly fashion about you know syntax and the making involved, um, the work involved in the making of books from that side of things. So it was part of my education. And then I uh, went across to Alan and Unwin and published history and uh, non-fiction politics and um, psychology and, and business and a little bit of fiction, then HarperCollins, and then so I went to work for Rupert Murdoch for a little while, but he sold the division I was running, not because I was running it, um, <laughs> although it may as well have been. Um, and so that was um, 19, early 1996, so I, you know, I, and, and, um, since then, I've been teaching and writing. That was the beginning of my writing career. But my writing was, I thought, I found my way into um, essay and memoir and creative nonfiction, and particularly nature writing, so the evocation of place, which then became the work I did for my uh, doctorate. And uh, my first couple of uh, books are in that, in that space, including my book, The Blue Plateau, which is about the Blue Mountains in the same way that uh, Moby Dick is about a whale, if you know what I mean. It's about a lot of other things, but it is indeed a book about the Blue Mountains. Um, into poetry particularly, if I can. Um, that happened when, when I was do, working on my doctorate. I um, found myself fiddling with poetry and not finishing any because I didn't know anything about form. So you can't know when a poem's finished and, unless you know something about form, how many lines it's supposed to have, how wide is it meant to be, what's its rhythm structure, otherwise it's kind of prose it's, um, that's you know, kind of a bit different. I, I didn't know where to go with it. On, and a couple of the subjects, the uh, people who, whose work I was studying for my doctorate also wrote poems and I had a methodological challenge about whether I would include their poetic work and decided that I should and that me being me meant that I went away and read books of form and prosody and style and craft and sort of apprenticed myself to it and then uh, poems began to come at that at that point once I got the edge of something not not mastery but some skill set and technique and a sense of uh, uh, comfort with what it meant to make a poem as opposed to make uh, some prose and um, so that was all happening while I was finishing my doctoral work which became a book called The Land's Wild Music and also writing um, The Blue Plateau and my very first published poem was a villanelle with uh, any poets in the room you know what a villanelle is um, for example do not go gentle into that good night um, uh, the Dylan Thomas and the, um, the art of losing isn't hard to master it's a very it's, an, it's a form that belongs to the same era as the sonnet and for some reason, I found myself with an iambic pentameter on my mind, and I thought there was a poetry competition going 
which is now called the Peter Porter Poetry Prize um, and was then called the ABR Prize. And I thought, well, you know, I might get a poem finished if I know if I choose this form and if I've got a date. And of course, it helps that they put some money up. And also, and so I went for it, and that was the first poem I actually finished and sent out beyond. And I was already nearly 40 by this stage, and that poem got shortlisted. So then I thought, oh, okay, maybe this is something I could do. Um, and that's how I got begun. That gave me a kind of some feedback from the world about, about poetry, which is sometimes very difficult to, to get. It's hard to know whom to ask. and, and um, where to go. So at, at that point, I'd been reading again a lot of poetry, a lot of 20th century uh, poetry and poetry across cultures and uh, learning and reading the books of form. Mary Oliver's got a couple of great books on poetic form if you want to go find out uh, about that stuff. Um, one of them is called The Rules for the Dance and the other is called A Poetry Handbook and there really is a book called The Book of Forms. Um, and uh, I looked at those books and I love all that staff. One of them is called, uh, one of the books I love is called Half the Funds in How You Say the Thing. Listen to the rhythm. I am big pentameter right there in the, the, the title. So I, I found myself then at that stage very drawn, I guess, to a lyric dimension, the lyric aspect of um, writing, which I had been vague about, but actually had been practicing without much um, instruction. And of course, poetry trades in, um, this has changed, it's different in different cultures, but to generalize, you know, poetry is at the more lyric end of the narrative to lyric uh, kind of spectrum. And um, to understand much about poetry in many forms means also thinking, knowing some things about metaphor and image making, but also learning what a syllable and a phoneme are and how many there are in a line and what the ancients did and how you might do that differently and whether you want to capitalize on the left-hand column or indeed Ali capitalize at all. Um, these are all things that, you know, poets consider beyond just getting things said. That poem that I read to you, you won't have any idea from, you might from the next one I, I read if I do it in a minute, um, it has a syllable count and it had three line stanzas in it. And one of the things I learned to love about poetry was that you get, you get the experience of, of the visual aspect of the poem. It looks like a sculpture on the page. That's just beautiful, right? Or can be. Just the look of the thing, way more than any prose is, because prose is not concerned with anything other than making sense through sentences and paragraphs. But poetry is, uh, when we make poems, we write lines as well as sentences and so on. So, and we're thinking about how many lines we make and what sort of sculpture, visual and sonic, that it is on the page. And um, as we walked here, you were asking me too about form and David was asking me about form and why form matters. It, it matters to me a lot more than it matters, I noticed, to many contemporary poets, particularly in Australia. But in part, um, that's just because I see it in the tradition and I think T.S. Eliot got it right when he spoke of the real meaning of tradition is not to chuck everything out and throw it away, it's to look back and carry it forward and adapt it um, to how things are, to make it new, as Ezra Pound um, says. Both individuals who have um, difficult political backgrounds, those two fellows I just mentioned, but who are very important in the making of, uh, remaking of poetry, but I, I, I love the play that poetry allowed me to make to, uh, with 
sculpture and with architecture and kind of dance and music as well as intellection, you know, with, with, say, with saying things and with getting stories told. So in that poem of mine, there were probably some things I should have explained there. Sappho in, is indeed my cat. You know who Sappho was? I kind of explained it in the poem, but she was a Greek poet of the broken heart and um, Sappho's just looking out the window going, you're coming back in. What are you doing outside there? That play between the kind of storytelling, the, the freedom that a poem gives a poet not to perpetually have to make sense, I quite like because I am an inveterate over-explainer. <laughs> That's the lawyer and teacher in me and I'm the author of three books about the writing craft so there's a didactic part of my nature and I, you know, I quite like that and I do quite like to bring a poem home with a kind of um, explanation, you know, sometimes. Um, but I felt a great liberation when I read um, poetry uh, from the need to perpetually make sense um, and the encouragement not just to make sense but to make love, as Octavio Paz has, has said it, that's the difference between a, a piece of prose and poetry. Um, and um, so I guess I stumbled into a calling, Robin, is how I'd summarize it. One I s sort of hadn't recognized through most of my teens and 20s that I had, or, or one I wasn't courageous enough to step into. But in retrospect, um, I didn't have much to write about. <laughs> um, and now you do. And now I do. <laughs> okay. So let's then talk about some other important issues, having heard about that long apprenticeship, I guess. From my own experience, and I spend a lot of time in schools, I would suggest that poetry is a form of literature that is not privileged a lot in schools today. And when I talk to my pre-service teachers about how confident they feel about sharing and teaching poetry, many of them are not confident. In fact, many of them don't know very much about it. A lot of them have, shall we say, some bad memories of having to write particular forms of poetry or having done something to death for the HSC and never want to touch it again. So that's my sense. And given, you know, the importance of it, what do you think the state of poetry's health is? Well, I, I, I've observed what you've observed, Robin, too, and I do go into schools and do some work. Robin and I are probably going to mention something more later about the work of Westwards. Um, but I've done a gig or two for Westwards going into schools and the very first one I did was at Granville Boys High and Westwards, whose, whose um, remit is really literacy and literature in Sydney's Greater West, um, in which one in 11 Australians live, Michael tells me. It's remarkable, isn't it? One in 11 Australians live in Greater Western Sydney, so it's a fairly... And think of all the languages and everything. But um, Westwards went in and said what would you, to the head of English, what would you help, what, what help would you like um, if we could give you some help? And, and the head of English said poetry because we, I and my fellow teachers don't 
feel as though we know anything about it, we're scared of it, and we don't know how to teach it. Um, my own thinking is that I think theories got in the way in the last 20 or 30 years, and people don't get to experience the being of a poem. You know, Archibald MacLeish says a poem should not mean it, it should be. Um, and rather than allowing our students to uh, get inside a poem and just experience the thing in it as if it were a place, like, come on in here, here's a sound world, um, feel what you feel, think what you uh, think, and then we might have a bit of a chat about it and notice things. I think students in the orthodoxies in the curriculum have been asked to do analysis too quickly and interpretation, and that'll kill off. Um, there is an argument that, of course, what is said in a poem can only be said in exactly that way. You can have a lovely conversation about the things around the edges of it, and theory has a lot of, um, a lot of, of value, but we've led, I think, perhaps in teaching since I was in school when I think I did get a fair bit more of just experiencing poems being read to me and being asked to read them and, and, uh, and, and le learn them. Uh, my, myself, so I think what's happened there is, well, I, a bunch of things too, I suppose, there was a time, we're going back 80 or, 80 or more years, or say my mother who's now 80, um, in, those, in those days poetry was shared more around the household and hadn't been turned into a fetish, which is how some contemporary poets, I think, what they've done to poetry in order to find another niche for it. We've turned it, some poets have turned it, and sometimes in interesting fashions, but into something quite inaccessible. Uh, and that scares the bejesus out of, you know, a lot of uh, people who otherwise might want to have an experience of poetry. Um, and so it's, it stopped being, it stopped having the currency it had, and partly for technological reasons. So we got radios and then we got, popular music, and so the pop song has really taken the place that poetry occupied in popular culture to a large, mm -hmm. to a large extent, which leaves poetry needing another place to go, hence language poetry and hence bush poetry and slam and other kind of adaptations, but um, uh, it disappeared uh, not in all, in, all, in all parts of the world, in other, in other cultures with other languages, like reliably, if you meet somebody from Iran, They'll tell you about uh, Kabir or Hafiz or Rumi. It doesn't matter who they are, Uber driver, whoever they are. Poetry still lives. Meet an Irish person, they'll start talking poetry to you. Meet a Chinese person, you'll get some poetry. But in the Anglo, and, and in, in Celtic cultures too, poetry is still very much alive in Poland, you know, uh, as well. These are, and and uh, I think in, in uh, where Hebrew is spoken as well, reliably, you can you can... Poetry hasn't been turned into a fetish and pushed to the margins, but for certain reasons in, all of which I don't understand, in the Anglo cultures in particular, Australia, Canada, Britain, England in, in particular, um, and um, the US, uh, poetry's been pushed to the edges, and maybe that's got to do with the predominant discourse of uh, capitalism and uh, you know neo-capitalism, particularly in that va value set and the way that well, here's the thing. There's, a, there's a, a writer polymath really called Robert Bringhurst. Forgive me, my students, I quoted this only the other, the, the other night, but Bringhurst 
who's written on typography and anthropology and language uh, and is a nature writer and poet, hence polymath, but he has a book called The Solid Form of Language, which, which is what he calls uh, writing, in which he says um, literature, poetry in particular, liberates language from writing. Think about that for a moment, because it's quite gnomic, right, at first. His argument is that what happens, and I think especially perhaps in English, because it is a very, English has a lot of dirt between its toes. It's a very, um, it's a very blunt, can be very blunt. Therein lies some of its beauty, uh, too. But it can be turned very easily to functional purposes. And when um, the value sets become what they have become uh, in the in the English speaking in the Anglo kind of uh, world, language disappears, and all we get is writing, which becomes very um, uh, n narrow. The discourse uh, narrows language down to a much more functional kind of thing. So the purpose, Bringhurst is arguing, or through time really, um, that that uh, lit literature of which poetry is the ancient and predominant form, its purpose is to give um, language back to its human purposes. All the other things we do with language, you know, jazz and relationship building and uh, evocation and uh, evocation and calling and um, the kind of spiritual work that we do in language with our voices between us uh, and the challenge the challenge and the, the task of, uh, of writing is, as I say in the piece that you read there, to refuse banalities which, which become entrenched in what Bringhurst is calling writing. In other words, the very normal forms that we feel obliged for reasons that escape me, I must say. Everyone out there feels obliged to write very narrow, voiceless, placeless language because they're working for corporates uh, and public sector enterprises, and I often say to them, what do you think's gonna happen to you? But we're very scared, and Australians especially, are very kind of conforming uh, people. So we do write the most prolix bureaucratic discourse in the world, um, and then go, oh, well, they expect us to, to do it. I don't know why we do that. I never wanted to do it, but, um, but we do give in rather, and it happens in the academic world, um, and I don't know why that's happened especially, but certainly poetry is an antidote um, to that. I notice, for example, sometimes when I um, go into a student body, like at, at uh, UTS, in that first year, uh, we're all doing our introductions and everybody else had been talking, as I am tonight, way too long about themselves. And so I thought, time is running short and I'm, I'm not going to tell them about my children this time and my dog and pet and everything. I'll just recite a couple of poems. And the, this is about poetry, not about me, but the, the atmospheric change that happened in that room was something quite remarkable. And it's hard to put into words, but it's like race memory, I think. It's like, oh, there's this thing that uh, musicality and, lang and language and slightly slantwise uh, vivid utterance is about and a friend of mine the other night stood in my place he was helping me move and I still had up on my wall some of this is very narcissistic but I worked for a client who produced some of my poems in these huge banners they look very beautiful 
and uh, not because of my words so much as what's in behind them, but I had one hanging up, and John just stood there and read it, and he said, you know, you creatives make us more human. That's what art is really for. So I did a thing at UTS the other day called How to Write Like a Human. And, you know, poetry is right at the center of what that's, what that's about. We began, though, with why it's disappeared from schools, and a lot of fears set in, and I think it's because the dominant discourses have forgotten uh, that, that uh, language is a human thing, and it proceeds through sound. It, it's as if we've forgotten in all that theoretical stuff that, sure, it carries ideas and theories, but it's not... I often say to my writing students, stop getting so distracted by the content. <laughs> Stop getting so distracted by the story or the, the interpretation that you want to give. That's all very interesting. And of course I'm exaggerating because of course you want them to concentrate there. But many students in schools will tell you, I'll, I'll put a sentence up or a line, you know, and sometime make the time to drive out west. Or uh, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And you write it up on the board and you'll say, I'll say, tell me about that sentence. And nearly everyone to a person offers an interpretation of its meaning, which of course is what we expect, we think that's what the challenge is, and schools I think have perhaps taught that, overtaught that. And I, I say, well that's interesting, but tell me about the sentence. What are its sounds? Are the words long? Are they short? What's the rhythm? How does it, how does it work? And that's the lyric dimension. You can't speak or write in, uh, in all the languages that I know anything about, especially English. So the only mistake, Fran, you made with my name was the syllable stress, uh, which many people do, and it just illustrates uh, the lyric dimension of all language. My name is Mark Tredinick. It's a second syllable stress. It's quite a different thing, isn't it? So you can't, you can't uh, use language without, without organizing noise into wisdom, or with wisdom, or organized noise is what language is. That's actually Verdi's definition of music opera, but I'm going to steal it for, for, for poetry where it's even truer. So we may be underdone, misunderstood the lyric dimension and kept, kept kids from, an experience, from experiencing the poem and letting the poems do the teaching themselves, perhaps. Can I just say one more thing? I had a, at my parents' 60th on the weekend, there's a, a friend of the family called uh, Siegfried who's uh, uh, from Alsace-Lorraine, so he has German and uh, French, and uh, he's a wonderful singing voice, a kind of lyric tenor, and uh, he wanted to say when I'd read something about, um, he said, you deliver the poem so well, and so much of it's about the, the silence, and I said, thank you, and then he told a story about, he said, oh, when I was young, um, we had to learn poems at school. Is that true for anybody in this in this room, it, it wasn't, I was at the end of it, but it was true for my parents, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, and, and so on, and he had to learn, this is, you know, back, uh, back in Alsace, uh, Lorraine, um, the whole of a very long Goethe poem in the, in, the, in the German, and he said, I didn't want to do that, I wanted to go ride my horses and muck around and do all the stuff that, but my father made me, and uh, they had to do it because they were being tested, you know, a week later. So he said, my father made me learn it. And when I learned it, he said, uh, read it, you know, recite it for me. And he recited it and he said, go back now and discover the poem inside the poem. You've just read the words. 
you've just said the words, but you haven't found the world, the world, yes, inside the words. And so kicking and screaming, Siegfried turned up to class a week later and, and recited the poem as his father had forced him to do. You shall not ride your ponies until you've learned the, learned the, learned the poem down. And um, his teacher gave him a detention because he said, I don't believe you did that work all on your own. <laughs> but yeah, but it's, a, it's, there's something like that. I look rather mischievously, I do sometimes say when I'm in the schools, don't hurry to get your students to write poems. Don't hurry them to making them, they're quite hard to make. They're easy to make badly, but they're quite hard to make well. So muck around by all means, but take the time, as Basho says, um, learn the rules, forget the rules. And he meant 70 years of learning and like 10 years of breaking. But you know, read, read some poems, give us an experience and on the voice too, if you can some, sometimes. Would you like to read us another poem? Sure. That was a nice segue, uh, Robin. Now, um, this is a poem called A Short Story of Flying. And just, uh, it's a newish poem, about a year old, I suppose. I think it refers to the weather. Um, uh, so you'll probably be able to, to tell. It's called A Short Story of Flying. And it responds to a poem of Alice Oswald's called A Short Story of Falling. Um, and this was a poem in which I, I loved Alice Oswald. Anyone heard of Alice, contemporary poet from Devon, and she just won the Griffin Prize. She's a fabulous um, poet. And this is uh, the first poem in her new book. Um, hers is called A Short Story of Falling. Yes, of Falling. Um, and I read her poem and felt called to respond to it. So this is a poem by a contemporary poet, so here me, uh, in the world, and Alice Oswald, that is written in what, is, what are called heroic couplets, so each line is quite precisely iambic pentameter, so five beats, and you should be able to hear it, and it rhymes, for goodness sake, and it rhymes A-A-B-B-C-C. -C. Now I, like Seamus Heaney, uh, who would rhyme when he wanted to, and loved the half rhyme and the near rhyme, you'll notice rhymes, like Wings and springs is obvious, and earth and birth, um, but woken and open uh, isn't so obvious. You might also notice, you'll probably lose track of the shape of this poem because the lines have rhythm, but syntax has another rhythm as well. And also I'm doing some rhyming um, within the lines. So you'll completely lose track of where the line, uh, the endings are until I come to the point where I say, if freedom is the hardest edge to hold, this is how it's held, unbought, unsold. So you think, oh yeah, there it is, I've got the rhythm back. But I'm like the drama who's playing one beat with that hand and another beat with, uh, with that hand in this one. Uh, and I don't think I probably need to tell you anything else. I think it all makes sense. Um, there's barely a poem I've written into which a bird doesn't want to fly. So this is another one. Um, it's right there in the title this time. A short story of flying after Alice Oswald. It is the story of the calling bird, a secret freely shared, but rarely heard. It is flying spooled and sky distilled and swilled like waking across the dawn, the lawn, the field of maize, the forest in the afternoon. It is the spinning world 
the shiver that thrills. I just missed my space there, so I'm just going to go. It's, it's flying spooled and sky distilled and swilled like waking across the dawn, the lawn, the field of maize, the forest in the afternoon. It is the spinning world, its waxing moon, a tide that turns in things the way a river springs from rock, the shock of hope, the shiver that thrills inside the thought of rested wings. The way a coiled mind now calms and springs again into the flight it knew before it fouled its lines along a lawless shore. It is the lyric of the patient earth that wants the sky to be its second birth. If freedom is the hardest edge to hold, this is how it's held, unbought, unsold. This morning, it's the song two spinebills climb into the rigging of midwinter's rhyme that's undressed every garden tree and woken me to days like doors that want to open. Chords that want to cry grief down, they've flown as one must let the past before I've grown some legs and found the heart to rise and score their music on this page as if it were my own. And overnight it was the owls, like books of wanton hours, the crooning fowls that mistake every midnight for the dawn. Let their eternal error be my own diurnal trick, a moral overheard, the breaking story of the calling bird. So that's a, um, you got the rooster right. Mistakes every midnight for the dawn. So in a way, that's what poetry does, isn't it? I mean, that's just, you stay awake because there's a rooster, but you want to say it in a way that makes it not merely about that rooster. And, uh, you know, then I talk about may its um, eternal error be my diurnal, which is a close rhyme uh, in, in, and, you know, that, that, we might talk a little bit about form later or whatever, but I find that the, the very best things, I don't know what the musicians in the room find too, but the very best lines you have no idea about before you sit down to make the poem, and they tend to be a gift of the hard work of trying to make it not seem like hard work, uh, and of the form and, you know, kind of the rhyme scheme. So that diurnal trick and how to how to end the poem, you know, occurred to me in the, you know, in the midst of making it. Wow. Um, do you think for a minute we could go back to the boys at Granville High? Do, do, yeah. Do you think you were asked to bring them poetry, to make poetry, etc.? What happened? Well, they made poetry. But it took a little, it took a little you, while. How did you help them? Well, I shared poems. Yep. Um, so I did what I was, I practiced what I was, mm -hmm. you know, preaching each week. And I, I found some poems and either uh, played some clips. One thing I did was um, I tried to find 
uh, for example, some Leonard Cohen, where you look at the text and then you, you hear him read the poem and then you hear him sing the song to get them thinking about, uh, and that popularizes it and, and makes poetry seem less um, strange. Uh, and uh, I would recite some poems, and then I gave them some prompts and exercises, and each week I modeled a couple of different poetic forms and said, haiku, 575, um, it's got to have these elements in it if you want to write one. Why? Well, just because um, it's in the tradition and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, off, off you go. And um, so each week we practiced um, and I found the things I most had to emphasize were stop analyzing. So it's interesting. These were boys from year, um, I think there were some sevens actually, seven, eights, nines and tens. So there were, I had different. Uh, classes of them, but they, they, they had got very early. The year sevens were much easier to work with in a way. They still seemed to me to be closer um, to a, a kind of, um, as it were, naive, simple speaking on the, on the page with real words um, and weren't so concerned to, to protect themselves from looking stupid. Um, the, you know, so these are all boys, too, in particular. Um, so the, the two things I found that I had to encourage them most was the relevance of um, stuff uh, like plants and birds and the texture of the clothing and the particular look in her eye and what color was that dress, the, that kind of particular uh, detail because um, that's all the stuff that's backgrounded in the discourses that become dominant through schooling, I think, and it seemed to them maybe to belong to childhood, but it's the hardest trick for grown-ups to, to relearn, don't you think, if you've been to creative writing courses, you know, literature foregrounds background. Um, literature differs from functional writing in terms of, you know, 3Ds. The deal it does is different. It says this is going to be a spiritual experience. This is not about information here. And the data it trades in is the background stuff, it's the, it's the texture. Why? Because the soul loves the particular, that's why. Um, and uh, without it, we don't experience our deep humanity. And then the devices through which po um, literature works in order to do that have to be different. You have to think about what's um, marginalized in, in the dominant uh, modes of analysis and articulation. So how does it sound and think about your image and all that kind of stuff. So I found it hardest to get the boys to um, be particular and specific. I noticed that nobody knows the name of a single tree. And I always say, you know, my students here will know it's one of my party tricks, but how many species of eucalypt are there in Australia? There might be some scientists. 900 odd. So don't call it a gum tree and don't call it a tree. You know, it's as each tree is as different as, as we are. And it's, it's a thing, actually, Isabel Lee, my translator, first introduced me to is the um, idea, and forgive me, Isabel, I'm about to butcher the pronunciation, but Xing, X-I-N-G, which is a, an aesthetic principle. There's quite a, a respectable literature on this, by the way. You should go read it. Isabel introduced me to it, but that proposes that no work of art is going to be any good unless a full 50% of it trades in what isn't human or isn't merely human. In other words, where's the light coming from? 
What do the grains of sand actually feel like? What's the light in this room characterized by? Because these are aspects of being a human animal. We live in an actual world that's physical, not just uh, you know, mental. So that's 50% of it, and that'll leave you 50% to talk about your ideas and your feelings and all the stuff that we tend to carry away from all the great books. And it's a principle that when you go look, you find is practiced across all cult cultures, indigenous cultures in particular, but all, all cultures. Um, you'll find if you go back to your Jane Austen and your Beatrix Potter and your Tolkien and your, well, he's an obvious example, Winton, but you know, any writer you, you, know, you care to name, well, a detective writer, a detective fiction writer, you'll, you'll be surprised how much of the ink is actually spilled on the irrelevant detail in the room, the, the, the carpet, and um, what's his name again, Raymond uh, Chandler, thank you, um, said, you know, when he, he was a poet first, admittedly, um, and always lost the plot. He never did know where his plots were going, you know, famously, but he said people aren't interested in the fact that he died. They're interested in the fact that as he died, he was reaching for a paperclip on his desk, which is, a which is, which is true. It's the irrelevant things that actually make, uh, take us back down to our deepest human self. And there's some of them outside the, the merely human realm. So the kids had trouble being particular and trusting uh, and finding a set of words that articulated their specific experience of, of life because I guess they mistrusted it or uh, felt that that was for children or something, but under provocation and threat of detention and um, uh, with some intervention and some kind of uh, group, group work, you know, they, they, they got there. I remember one thing we did was we got them, and this wasn't my idea, this was a friend's idea who had been a teacher, and I said, I'm having a little trouble with some of these kids, and you had a thousand languages too in the room which is another uh, thing at Granville High. Um, and I said, and she said, um, I, we did this exercise where we got uh, each person to write one line and then to give that to his, they were all boys at Granville um, partner, and then read them back and then we just took those lines. I had a theme, I forget what it was, something natural or uh, something you saw on your way to school this morning, I think is what, is what it was. And we just took all those lines and um, got each person to read his partner's line out the front of the class. And we wrote, the teacher wrote them up uh, big, and then we reshuffled all the, the kids and made a poem. And it was remarkable that, um, and they saw this thing happen. And I think that, that reminded them that the work of uh, poetry in particular isn't reducible just to the meaning that it, that it makes, and that it's a, uh, it is a semi-mystical, shamanic craft in a way, and you need to learn to trust what the language itself wants to teach you and where it wants to lead, uh, lead you. So, uh, so I guess I'm saying we also had fun. So this is fun, start having fun. This is fun, it might not seem like it or whatever, but it, you know, it really is. And I, you know, I read them a couple of silly poems. And the other thing though that, that, that all children and many people reliably do when you ask them to write a poem and you spend a lot of time saying now you know that no one's made it rhyme since 1939 <laughs> and you say you know sure you can rhyme if you want to but you know where you say all of that stuff and then you say all right now write a poem every single poem that comes back rhymes <laughs> why do we do that 
Why do we think that that's, that's there? I think, and this gets back to the other question, Robert, in a way, I suppose we get the only introduction, like most people's education in poetry finishes with nursery rhymes. That's where it ends. And so those have tended to rhyme in a way, and then they progress to pop songs, which are also rhyming very old-fashioned kind of poetic forms, of course. And so um, rhyme is the only thing that most people think kind of counts. It's just sort of ingrained. It's very Anglo, too, because, of course, most poetries in the world haven't rhymed. Um, there are some interesting... Uh, Cornish, my name is Cornish, and there are some interesting Cornish um, forms like the Englon that do things that Dylan Thomas practiced because Welsh is quite like Cornish too, where they rhyme on the consonants, not the vowels, and they do it from, as I did in that last poem, I read a bit, um, you know, the last line in uh, rhymes with the second word on the next line, that kind of thing. So you can do all manner of very interesting um, uh, things rather than just... Rhyming. If you're going to rhyme successfully, you, you have to disguise it um, a little bit. So reliably, they did rhyme, and everybody's poem sounded like it was written by the same person, and it didn't have any light or trees or birds or car names. or. And everybody then says, but so, you know, no one's interested, are they? Yes, people are interested. The soul actually does love the, the particular. And that's part of, you know, literature's function, I guess, to remind us about, to bring us back to our senses in all senses of that, that phrase, you know, the, the world that we experience through our eyes and nostrils and ears and fingers and, and so on, and all that's Im, implicit um, in the world that we encounter uh, that way. Well, thank you. I think that's very heartening, that, you, that reintroducing poetry to those boys brought them back to who they are, to their senses, to their soul. Yeah, that's amazing. They're full of humanity. Yeah. So maybe it's time to hear your questions. I've got lots more, but this is not just about my questions. I'm sure that lots of you have things to ask Mark. You might like to introduce yourself as well. Just hi there. My name is Maithley, and I'm in Year Ten. I just have one question for you. When you tend to write. Uh, do you plan the syntax, the rhymes, the everything? That, do you plan it or as you write, does it just tend to follow? Well, that last poem I read, I knew exactly what form I wanted precisely and sometimes I, sometimes I, I do, but I knew nothing other than the first two lines when I began. But I did have, um, I did have a rhythm and I did have a rhyme scheme in that case and, and I needed to conform strictly to it. Um, my parents had their 60th, as I mentioned, on the weekend, and I, all I had for that was an image um, of a murmuration of birds. You know what a murmuration is? That phenomenon, it was starlings, and all week they were going off, and um, I ignored them as we do. We miss most of what's going on most of the time, and then I thought, you know what, this is the third day in a row I've seen those birds doing that. So with that poem I had an image um, and I saw two mobs of them, and they joined up. Now, if that's not a nice metaphor for marriage of 60 years, I don't know what is. So I thought, okay, there's the, there's the beginning of my poem. But at that point, that's, that's pretty much all I had. But then I heard myself in my head thinking about it going, um, uh, uh, all week the early skies of May replete 
with the murmuration of starlings. And I thought, ah, I've got an iambic pentameter. So it kind of comes to you. And you, over time, you learn a little bit about craft and, and, and technique and lines and which rhythms kind of work. And so I noticed in my own thinking that it had a rhythm. And so then I honor the rhythm because language is wiser than I am and form is the way you plug into it. And so I thought, right, there's my line. I'm going to write iambic lines, um, uh, well, pentameter lines. It's only loosely iambic. Uh, and I am goes to da, so you have the gift of understanding dreams. And my first line roughly had that. So then I, then I conform with it. And what happens then is um, the form that you choose marries up somehow with the, with the content and the images that you've, you've got. But you keep um, serving form, not just sense. So you keep serving, in other words, the, li the, line, the line length, and you make linguistic decisions because you're about to bump into the end of a line, um, and you've chosen to do that. Um, and that seems to lead me into deeper places uh, of, uh, of language. Sometimes, so in the end over time, so over the years I've been writing poetry, I've probably developed a repertoire of seven or eight regular poetic forms that I go to. So to simplify the answer, there's some kind of thing that happens in the world or thought that occurs in the mind or as Robert Frost says, a poem is, um, is feeling that finds a thought and thought that finds words to utter it. That's the kind of process and you'll notice, you'll think this is insisting upon itself, I think I need to write something and then I'll do a little, little bit of listening to myself and work out whether I've got I know, it's intuitive. This one needs to be... I, I might, if I get a moment, read a couple of other poems, and sometimes one of my forms is a seven-syllable line. There are other poets who just write very differently from me. I seem to need, at a certain point, after just the scribbling, I need to know the architecture. And the, the architecture will help deliver up most of anything um, that's any good uh, in the poem. Where do you learn those forms? Where do you think you learn the forms you might? use in your own poetry? Where do you think you learn the forms? No, wrong answer. She said you come up with them by yourself. Sometimes you do, but you read. And that was the rest of the answer you were about to, to give me, I know. Um, because, you know, there, there, are, there are, it's like anything else. How do you learn how to put a good sidestep on in rugby? You watch them do it, and then you practice it. There are things to be learned. It's a kind of apprenticeship. Um, there's a kind of... One of the other misunderstandings, I think, about poetry is that it's, it's just kind of loose and complete um, f free expression of oneself. If poetry is any good, it's actually not merely an expression of oneself. It's an expression of all ourselves. And the, the human, rather than the merely private or the personal, only gets in there through the way we temper free freedom of expression through uh, metaphor and discipline and technique, all of which is very beautiful. As Robin reminded me on the way up here, I've got a form of words where some, somewhere, I forget even where I said it, but um, form in poetry is the cage the poem dances down. So no form, no dance. It's the dance you want, but the constraint matters. So you find your forms by stealing them 
from people who knew what they were doing in the first place. There are cultures in the world, I mean, in English, for example, a poem in Shakespeare's time wasn't a poem unless it was one of the five or six standard forms with specific rhythm schemes and, uh, and, and rhyme patterns. All of that got loosened up in the modern era and again in the postmodern um, era, but nonetheless, really, a poem isn't a poem unless it, it's, um, it, there's some kind of constraint, some kind of design that we're working to. And coming up with the shape of the poem for yourself is a big burden. Leave that to other people. It's all been done. There's, there are plenty of forms out there that you can just use and master those. And of course, you sometimes do make up some of your own. Some of the forms that I use, I guess, are coinages. But mostly, I was schooled in them by reading somebody else's poem that I liked. And I thought, I'm going to have a crack at that and see whether that works for my, for my voice. It's a dance. It's the, the, the answer, too, between the thing that pr it presses up and wants to be said uh, and some form that will be adequate to serve the spirit of what wants to be um, said. And there are poems that I've written through seven or eight different forms. So the one I began, sometimes they do begin quite loose. Uh, I did with my parents' poem on the weekend, actually, for a little while. And then after five or six lines, I just go, nah, if it's going to be that loose, I'll, I'll write prose. This is a poem, son. So, you know, what's its shape? What's, uh, you're going to find a lot more of the poem within the poem when you find a kind of shape. But sometimes I look at it and I go, no. Uh, Robert Frost said, you know, in a poem, the form needs to serve the sense and the sense needs to serve the form. It's a kind of marriage and you deeply intuitive at a certain point. You just look and go, nah, that one's not the right shape for its for its content in a way. And you're not going to know how to make that judgment unless you read around a little bit and work out what the options are uh, really with form. So it's a mix. Great question. Thank you. Oliver. I guess it's a follow-up to that. Um, I think we all know what Marshall McLuhan said, that the medium is the message. And the question I have is, because we're losing this form, is it one of the reasons why we seem to have lost a diversity in thought? Because like, the way you think is informed by the forms your thought comes out in. So do you think that's why like, things are becoming like, polarized? Because this, this diversity of expressing ourselves have been lost. And a corollary to that is, what do you think of YouTube? Is it like, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, a serious question. Is it like, could it be a way for the oral tradition to come back? Because we've become like a text culture, but now like there are hours and hours of YouTube videos so we could just hear the words and not read them. Yeah, thank you. It's always very scary when Oliver picks up a microphone because you're going to get a question that will be 10 times better than any answer <laughs> that comes. Um, I think YouTube's fantastic for poetry because uh, for the reasons that you uh, mentioned. Um, and uh, also, you know, terrible. There'll be a lot of junk out there and all of that kind of stuff. But it does remind people that um, all, all writing is an act of speech and poetry in particular uh, is um, a sonic medium. So uh, it gives access to, to, uh, um, to more people, to much more poetry from all around the world. So that's all got to be a good thing, um, I think. Um, the, I mean, arguably in, in making a poem, we're participating in many different discourses at once. Lots of 
lots of um, ways of seeing the world and um, knowledge sets and wisdom sets tend to show up in uh, indirectly often but in most you know good poems some aware some awareness of science some awareness of business some awareness of history um, so I suppose um, and you are linking it to the form question I was linking form to the way it liberates so I suppose that's the connection here writing too loosely we actually end up making language more banal and less human and kind of narrowing it down so yes something something is uh, lost but the other thing I wanted to comment on um, I know Oliver, Oliver from UTS by the way um, and uh, the other thing I want to comment on is the state of you know poetry today which was in behind our questioning here is actually despite all everything we're saying tremendously rich and, li and lively and it's very lively especially in um, the performance realm and the 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 digital um, you know space there's a lot going there's a lot going on there and younger for younger people that's a much more natural place to go looking for their to perform it and to con to, to consume it um, so despite what we're saying here po poetry will I do hope that it will continue to be made I'm sure it will continue to be made because it's a deep human hunger and as long as it continues to be made then um, we will all be held to account um, poetry holds everything dear but it also holds us to account for banality and cruelty and lack of kindness and all that kind of stuff it's 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 its kind of function um, and if we can just keep enough people reading and engaging with it and technology is part of the answer um, then it's okay Seamus Heaney with whom if we have a chance I might finish uh, later in his Nobel um, address which I think I quote in what I wrote about poetry you know says that poetry's unique gift is to allow us to um, speak a deep and uh, fierce retributive to or to perform a deep and harsh retributive justice so in other words to hold the world to account for stupidities for hypocrisies um, for banalities and cruelties while at the same time allowing our hearts to love what they love and for that to be okay that's poetry's kind of space that you know language that does too um, often contradictory or contrary things um, at once it's why I think I love it and why you know I advocate it I suppose thanks uh, do you have a favorite uh, environment for writing poetry some poets uh, like to write poetry while on the move say uh, while going out on walks and other poets prefer more uh, writing at the desk uh, do you have a favorite environment yourself uh, mine is driving at 120 k's um, up the up the freeway. That's when they well, that's their favourite place to find me, <laughs> is what I would say. And so I've learned to do voice to. Uh, I don't like to dictate much in a way because I'm too voluble when I when I speak. But um, I, look, I think the short answer is no. I don't have a particularly favourite place. Plus. My name, Tridenic, happens to mean a semi-fortified encampment. That's what the phrase actually means. So that means I'm a gypsy. And um, I have, in fact, moved a lot in my life. So there have been many favorite 
places, and I've just got a new one. Um, you know, on the weekend, I love the little writing room I've got in the house I've moved into in Barrel, but I betcha I write, write most of the poems on the lounge or sitting on the grass or when I'm flying to Berlin or something like that. They come when they want to come. Another favourite place, though, um, just to stay on message, Robin, really, is um, out at Wedderburn. Uh, there's a, an old schoolhouse that... Westwards have um, as writing rooms and for my sins I get to go out there uh, once a week and from there I kind of, I'm cur curating a program of uh, workshops and events a bit like this, but you know, let's not tell Westwards, but I actually do spend quite a bit of time there listening to the bellbirds and writing. And I've found that in recent times to be just by its very nature um, a poem of a place, really, and it seems to evoke things. Uh, once a poem has begun, I can write it pretty much anywhere, but when I'm getting it begun, I even have to turn the radio, the classic FM off, or the Debussy CD, or whatever it is, and have something close to perfect um, silence. But once it's begun, I'm okay. I can return to it um, wherever I am. Ma, uh, can I just um, get a question in here? Building on that, I think it might be good if we could hear a little bit about what Mark's going to do as, as um, artist in residence, writer in residence while he's here, because it, a lot of it will be available for, for people who'd like to, to um, join in. Um, so, as uh, writer in residence, look, I had this idea that a writer in residence got a really big room and I mean, a lot, and two, you know, windows on two sides, and no obligations at all. Just um, go sit and write, um, and I hope to do some of that in a, in 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 whatever room. Not sure about the room. I'm pretty unsure about the room too. Might be a cupboard. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, that's a connection to the last answer. I don't, I don't, I don't really mind. Um, but I know that we're um, going to be doing running some workshops. And some of the workshops are for um, uh, university staff, some are for um, teachers, um, English teachers, and those will be about uh, creative writing and poetry and also the use, well, I, in my mind, I think I want to say some things about the uses of poetry um, in m many forms of uh, teaching and also how to teach poetry um, and some creative writing workshops. Robin and I and probably um, Judy Beveridge are going to be, we're going to be having a conversation right out at, um, out at Wedderburn toward the end of uh, things. And we're also doing some work with, um, uh, I, think I, I think I owe um, the, the, the gig in part to the Copyright Agency Limited and we're going to visit them, I think. And um, they're going to give us lots of drinks is what I understand. <laughs> and um, just sit us down and give us some nice food and we'll talk about the importance of literature and poetry. Um, have I covered it? And we're, so we are concerned. Well, actually, another conversation Robin and I had at the beginning was, um, uh, I mean, the other, th the other thing that I have written a lot about and um, taught a lot in is just the business of, of writing with grace, whatever. Uh, it is, and art articulating, yeah, writing like a human, speaking like a human being in the intelligent vernacular. So I think we'll do some workshopping and conversations on that uh, subject, a critical skill for teachers uh, and all of us. 
Hi. Um, I wanted to draw a couple of the threads together that you have mentioned. One of them being about the importance of literature. One of the, uh, another of the threads that you mentioned was about uh, being called into schools by teachers who didn't know how to teach literature and poetry. And at least those teachers value, have some sense that there is value in passing this on, that it is in fact important. But you also talked about sort of a predominant Anglo culture that seems to be afraid of poetry. And I'm wondering whether that is an a fear of the poetry of life for them, which opens up a broader question about how do you teach the value of poetry in form, in life, and if we can manage to teach the value, then maybe it leads to the other question, just how do you make a living as a poet? <laughs> That's the easiest part of the question to answer, Michael. You know, because you, you pay some of my wage. That's how I do it. You do it by... But it's not um, a living. No, that, that isn't. Um, you teach and you write copy and you do things around the, the edges. Um, there are prizes offered for poetry, which from time to time one has the luck to win, but you can't... That's not a living either. That's luck <laughs> or grace. Or, or um, something. So um, you try, you try to do. Or my experience is: well, you can drive an Uber, you can drive a taxi, you can do gardening, um, and poets do many, many things. You can be a psychiatrist, Ian. Um, you can do lots of other kind of things. I've tended, in uh, in my case, to do um, teaching and consulting and writing around writing, around poetry, so talking about it, going into schools, uh, performing it. There are some uh, poets who might go close to earning a living from their performance uh, of poetry, or it would be a larger part of their living, but I think it's been a long time. You know, you know what, in a sense, I suppose, there aren't many cultures and haven't been many ever anywhere in which poetry was a path to fortune and um, a healthy bank account. And in a way, you don't want them to be because to start trying to measure the value of what poetry offers in, uh, in the kind of terms of trade in which economics and commerce operate um, gets everything kind of skewed. So what we need is for uh, all the things you mentioned there for, for a growing awareness of uh, how one's real life is the poetry of one's life um, and not just the kind of daily hours to turning up to work, the, the kind of paying of the bills, all of that stuff is very important to get, to, to get by and like to stay alive and feed the children. But um, to find ways to, and I suppose those things are um, spiritual that we're talking about, there, how to reawaken people to our inner lives, the, our essential lives, which are spiritual. Um, I don't know what the short answer to that, um, to that, that one is. I know that poetry is kind of part of it, but what we need, I suppose, is for a valuing of poetry to be reawakened. How's that going to happen? By sharing uh, poetry 
uh, in whatever ways you know we can find, and by inducing people to read and you know and and uh, and recite poetry where, wherever they um, can, and by working with teachers, I think that's a that's a big part of it. And kids, they're always the great hope. So look, um, we are running out of time, and Mark does want to read um, another poem, but before he does. Um, I did want to thank the, the Copyright Agency for uh, their support um, to, to enable Mark to be in our school um, over the year, particularly in second semester, and we will be advertising the different workshops and, and those sort of things. But we also wanted to thank Sydney Ideas and the work that Anna Burns and Ira Ferris has, have done to make this happen tonight. I think it's a really good way of publicising the fact that we are going to, to be having Mark with us for the rest of the year. Um, so please support what we're trying to do. We are trying in our School of Education and Social Work to really prioritise creativity um, so, so much of what's happening in education is, is a huge concern in terms of thinking about high stakes testing and teachers being de-skilled. It's really important that we encourage the creativity that really is in all of us and so important through all of the different art forms. And as Marcus told us, poetry really embodies all of them in a sense. And so, um, yeah, let's find a way to share and celebrate that um, with the opportunity to have Mark working with us well said. this year. Over to you. Soft bombs. From under the shower, I look up at jacaranda blossoms, fallen overnight on the skylight in the rain. And I think of you, the tender, hopeful, violence of the sacrifice involved in loving me, each kiss a pretty body part, a broken fall from grace. That's soft bombs. Um, I wanted just to read uh, a seijo, one of the Korean forms that I've been writing a little bit of late um, on the invitation of um, Dan Disney, who's got a journal in, uh, in uh, Korea. A sejo is a Korean haiku. It's got three lines, and each line has 15 syllables in it, uh, roughly. Let me just read you two um, quickly, because they speak to the themes we've been talking about, I think, quite well. And then I want to finish with Seamus Heaney's poem, Postscript, uh, which remind us, reminds us all what it's all about. Early summer sejo. Still water in a glass, the invisible world finds a form. I drink and taste emptiness, a flavor older than the sun. Cicadas cry ten years underground into three days on earth. And a second uh, seizure, which I wrote for uh, the opening of the... Um, 
the Wedderburn Writers' Room. It's called Hope, and it uses in its first line some words written by Liesel Muller in her poem, also called Hope, where she says, um, all we know of God, she says, it is the singular gift, all we know of God. Hope is all we know of God who dwells the edge where all ends meet. Winter fruits doubt into berries and sap. No rain for months now. If you knew half what's known here, you would neither hunger nor thirst. I should really say with that poem that the Wedderburn site intermingles lots of ecologies, um, bush and agricultural land and suburban ground, and it's very, very, it's an ecotone in scientific terms. Um, Seamus Heaney, Postscript. This is a very well-known uh, poem of Seamus Heaney's, but let me just share it with you. It's a, it's a, it's a sonnet with 16 lines. Um, sonnets are meant to have 14 but we've been breaking that rule through the 20th century, um, and that's fine. Uh, they once rhymed, and this one doesn't, but it's, it's absolutely a sonnet in what it does and how it moves and where it turns. And I'm reading it because um, Seamus Heaney embodied in his being and his writing what poetry's for, um, the justice it does, and the tenderness that it embodies and the deeper humanity that it encourages, I guess. And I think in his last couple of lines, he says exactly uh, why we need it. Postscript. And sometime make the time to drive out west into County Clare along the flaggy shore in September or October when the wind and the light are playing off each other so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter and inland among stones the surface of a slate gray lake is lit by the earthed lightning of a flock of swans their feathers roughed and ruffling white on white their fully grown headstrong looking heads tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think, you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there. A hurry through which known and strange things pass as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. Judy Breveridge says that Mark is one of our great poets of place, not just geographic, but spiritual and moral. I think we can see why. Can you join me in thanking Mark? Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. 
For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.